welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by the letter H. Aw, thanks, letter H. You're my favorite letter. Let's start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by El Jefe's Cubanos. Check out Chef Carl Casper's uh, El Jefe's Cubanos. It's a new truck. I forgot to finish making that blurb. Awesome. <laughs> perfect start yeah. to the perfect podcast. We are rolling. This is the pestle where we like to discuss and break down films and in great detail. We like to not only discuss all the, the regular stuff, you know, the good acting and the cool moment with the explosion and the guy walking away in slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk about why is that explosion there? What does it mean? Yeah. And how did they do it? I think the how do they do it is the actual legitimate I, thing that we yeah, will talk about. I think about. that's right. I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Today we're going to be doing Ex Machina, um, one of my favorite films from, what is this, 2015, I think. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it already, be aware there's a lot of spoilers. We're going to get into some pretty deep story detail. We'll be covering camera work, some of the techniques, um, storytelling techniques, and, and the way they visualized it. We'll talk about some of the symbolism of Ex Machina, and we'll also bring in a special guest interview with Byron Reese of GigaOM's Voices in AI podcast to discuss artificial intelligence and the uh, singularity and all those fun things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my name's Todd. I'm, I'm more of a uh, kind of... <laughs> You, you want to start over? No, I took a nap right before this. I was trying to get my mojo back, and I don't think I'm awake yet. Well, what's your name? My name is Wes. Oh, hi, Wes. I'm Todd. Hi, Todd. So Wes is the filmmaker of the group. Uh, he's he's more of a um, very technical kind of uh, introspective. Uh, how do they do this? Why do they do it? Um, kind of big picture guy and i'm i'm more of the you know i love going to films uh just to enjoy the film and to shut off for a little while and um but i also love the why and and what is this you totally do and to be fair you are a filmmaker in your own right you may not put have as much uh day-to-day to to do with filmmaking but you certainly can rock the camera you know what you're doing behind it and to be honest i know some full-time filmmakers that you're at least as good at. So do I. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. Uh, The point being that we love film and, uh, and all aspects of it, you know, from the writing to the directing, to the acting, to all of the, the hundreds of people that it takes to put together, you know, a real, you know, uh, large film. So yeah. And I'm really happy that we're doing this movie the first time I saw it, I was totally floored by it. Second time I saw it, I was totally floored by it again. And one of the things that floors me, just before we get into the uh, synopsis, uh, well, pause, spoiler alert. Right. So if you haven't seen this movie, like you said earlier, here we go. Just, yeah, here we go. Well, I won't get into the details yet, mm. but just the idea of artificial intelligence in itself, what that really is. Like, you know, you say artificial intelligence, you just think, oh, a machine that thinks. It's it's very much like if you were to say, are you self-aware? Meaning, do you have, do, are you aware that you exist in a space and 
that one day you will not like, hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a short little idea of what that is, but like it encapsulates it really well though. Thanks. And, but so the way that they approach what AI actually is in this film is very unique. They don't just say, they don't just say a human interacts with a computer um, and doesn't know that it's interacting with a the computer. They say, no, this human is going to know that they, that this is a computer that they're interacting with and still see human traits uh, in it. You Brutal. Know, it's yeah, it's just like the the ex, the extent that they're going uh in it is is just awesome. But let's give a quick synopsis and and we'll go into the soundbite. Um so the synopsis is a young programmer is selected to participate in a groundbreaking experiment in synthetic intelligence by evaluating the human qualities of a breathtaking humanoid AI. It's written and directed by Alex Garland and it's starring Dom Dom Noel Gleason as Caleb Oscar Isaac as Nathan and Alicia Vikander as Ava. So, do you know what the Turing test is? Yeah, I know what the Turing test is. It's when a human interacts with a computer. And if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. And what does the past tell us? That the computer has artificial intelligence. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right, Caleb. You got it. Because if that test is passed, you are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods. <sighs> There's like yeah. only a thousand things I love about this. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, for one, start? yeah, it's written and directed by Alex Garland, which uh, is my favorite screenwriter, and this is his directorial debut. Uh, he wrote things like The Beach, which is what mm. he cut his teeth on. Um, he had, I think he originally wrote the novel and then Danny Boyle asked him to, uh, adapt it to a screenplay. And so that began his relationship with Danny Boyle because then he went and wrote 20 days later and then he wrote sunshine, which for the longest time mm-hmm. was my favorite film. Yeah. And so it was at that point that I realized, Oh, this has been Alex Garland. These the beach I, I'm, you know, hot and cold on, but 20 days later was yeah. formative, oh, you know, in the, the zombie genre. Yeah. Um, it completely changed the game. And so af- after realizing sunshine is what he wrote, I was like, Oh God. And then finding out he's going to get to direct too. There is apprehension that goes with that, I guess, because like, Oh, is he going to be as good? Cause one of the things I think a great director does when he's not writing the script is to, be able to step back and analyze it. What, what is and isn't working, you know, in a script. And sometimes as a writer director, you don't always recognize those things. Yeah. You just think in your head, all oh, this is necessary. I'm keeping everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he did it. He absolutely knocked it out of the park. That's, I mean, certainly worthy of my praise. Like, yeah. I'm just floored um, because that just means he's able to take these highfalutin science fiction concepts and bring them home. And mm-hmm. so to me, that's one less step between an auteur and uh, his finished work. 
that he no longer has to go through. Yeah. He gets to be the arbiter of, of it all. And it's pretty awesome that it's all set in like this one area. Like there's no, I mean, this one building basically in the surrounding, the surroundings of the building, but it's just all right there. And, and I think that might be, I mean, if it were, if it were me, that would probably be a good, a good, like a good story to start with. Mm -hmm. Right. Not this grandiose, you know, thing with a lot of explosions and stuff. Um, just a, we're in this one specific place and they get there very quickly. We talked about this when we watched the film in the first 30 seconds, you know, okay, here's a main character. He's just won a competition and now he gets to go to this place and he's there within two minutes. He's there, um, without any words. Uh, well, there's some words in the helicopter, but basically without any dialogue, mm-hmm. it goes from, I mean, you learn so much just, you know, him getting there. And I love that they didn't waste any time too of impressing. Cause even in that, you know, whatever it is, 30 seconds, like you're seeing this idea of him being observed. Oh and yeah. Yeah. Right. The first time viewing in my mind, I'm like, Oh man, is the AI already in control? Has she already, you know, taken over mm-hmm. and this is her doing these things. And so right from the beginning, there's this question of who's in control, who's in power. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. I love that. I mean, this was really filmed in two locations, uh, in Norway, you know, for those breathtaking outdoor scenes. Mm. And then in the UK and what had to be a studio, uh, because the nice thing about that, and we've talked about this in previous episodes is you get to control all the lighting. Like whenever you can have complete control over your set and so much as you're building it from scratch, that is huge to have your DP working hand in hand with your set designer because now you get to control the lighting in a much more fine tuned way. Like all these, you can see, you know, just that main hallway shot, you have this lighting lined all along the walls in, in the cracks of the ceiling, like where you might normally have crown molding, you know, you have lights coming out Mm -hmm. and it just creates this, huge soft lighting filling the room so that you already have a great foundation. And then all you got to do from there, I mean, I say all, uh, it's not like they really use that as their biggest shortcut. I probably would have as a filmmaker, uh, uh, you know, guy who's just still trying to figure out how I would shoot some of these things. I probably would have stopped there and just maybe dropped a Kino, you know, (laughs) and said, okay, we're good to go. Yeah. Uh, Let's, let's dial in some color gels and get it going. But they took some time and I've seen someone else do some breakdowns and I'll, I'll actually post a link in in the show notes at the pestlepodcast.com. And they took a nice big, strong light and then ran it through like triple diffusion. It looks like. So you have this huge hard light. Maybe you're bouncing off of a beadboard. And then, which is like this big white styrofoam thing, then you're bouncing it through a diffusion, like silks that maybe is taken off a half stop. And then it goes through another silk and then another silk. And so by the time it finally reaches your, your subject, your actor, then it's super soft. Like all that lighting, you're not getting a lot of hard shadows. If any, if you can see that, the gradient between the light and the dark at all. Like it's so gradual. It's so soft that it's just this beautiful, gorgeous lighting that is built into the set too. So that 
even as you get that on the face, it doesn't feel false. It feels like it's created by the room because they've already got all this soft lighting in the background that you don't have to justify that lighting anymore. There's this concept in, uh, in gaffing or in, uh, being, you know, a cinematographer called where you carry the light so that in a scene, if you have like a lamp and you, you have someone sitting in a library and they're at this desk and you have one of those little, what do you call them? Accounters, accounting lamps. What do you call those little green? Oh yeah. I, yeah, don't, I don't, I don't know. Sure. I don't know what they're called. Yeah, yeah. I want to say they're like accounting lamps. lamps. Yeah. Accounting lamps. Yeah. That's what it's yeah. called. And you have your guy sitting, you know, in front of that. Well, it's not going to really properly light your subject because there is a lampshade that's hard that you're not going to get into diffusion through that. But what you can do is use that light to justify nicer lighting on his face. And so what you actually do is set up some lighting off screen and you're using that lamp as motivation. And now you can have some other light that softly hits him mm-hmm. on his face. And that way it feels like it's coming from the lamp, even though literally if you take away that other light behind the camera, eh, not so much. Now you gotcha. see that, oh, you had this heart lighting and maybe it's bouncing off the table a little, but it's not strong enough. Yeah. Um, and so you do all these little techniques that in other films are, that are necessary to carry the light, but you don't have to do it. If you've built your own set, you're in one big location that you control everything. You, you have all the lights on dimmers and you can do all kinds of amazing that shifting, right? Where she cuts the power and suddenly mm-hmm. everything's in red. Yeah. Freaking gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, how do God. you do how do you do that in camera? I think in camera what they're doing is they because you've rigged everything, you have everything in dimmers, um, you can effectively have like a, a mixing board that you're sitting down at. And whenever you're ready for that shift, you effectively dial over. It's like a turntable where you're switching from the the left, left vinyl right. yeah, to yeah. the right vinyl. And you know, more or less, that's not the exact way I think it works, but more or less, that's what you're doing. You're just transferring the, uh, the light over. And because you've rigged all that into your, into your paneling, into your, your mm. mixing board. Gotcha. Freaking cool. But I mean, in principle, it's nothing that you and I can't do. We can go to Home Depot, buy a 10 or $15 dimmer, and suddenly we, we can wire a lamp to that and we control the lighting in our room in a very practical way. Yeah. I know there's been shoots where I, I wish I would have had that just as a matter of efficiency, it takes a little more effort on the front end. Yeah, sure. But then once you're in camera and you're like, Oh, this, that lamp is, is blown out in the exposure right now. Can we dial it down? Yeah. Or the opposite. Like we can bring that lamp up and get a little more light, you know, onto our subject just as a practical light. Yeah. So that's awesome. I, I love for, I mean, a lot of reasons. I mean, it's a visual look, that they that they have in terms of being in one location and having that small intimate feeling that still has all this kind of grandiosity about it, right? It feels important. Yeah. Well, I, I, there are so many rooms in that house mm-hmm. that it, you can't help but feel like each room is intimate because they're not. None of the rooms are big. I mean, maybe the room that she is in is a little bit big, but even that is broken up into sections. There's like a hallway. There's a room she's writing in. There's a room that she sits down in to talk to, to Caleb. So the, everything is small. All the rooms are small, even though there's a lot of rooms. Yeah. I mean, even the living room, you know, um, that's built into that rock, which is amazing. I think that's probably the biggest room, but it's still not even that big. Um, so there is this, kind of feel of of 
of intimacy, like you said, which is really cool when Caleb and Ava are talking to each other and getting to know each other. And I think that's, you bring up a good point because that kind of allows us, it kind of leads us to believe that there is intimacy between the two because it's really not because the room Caleb is in is tiny. Yeah. I mean, if he laid it down on the ground, he wouldn't, he, you know, he'd take up the <laughs> right. entire space. So his room is really tiny. The room she's sitting in is really tiny. Uh, and the only thing separating them is just a pane of, of glass, essentially. So they do this really cool thing way. They make this really cool feeling of, of there can't help but be intimacy between the two. And the way that they do the, the special effects on her is um, is incredibly brilliant. It reminds me of one of your favorite movies, Attack the Block, yeah. which I think of referenced a couple of times right. because that is it, it really in 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 CGI less is more. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we if we can't get anything else through to other filmmakers who have the capability of doing this kind of thing, please just listen to that. Less is more. You watch Attack the Block, you watch Ex Machina and you you see Oh, that's all you got to do is introduce a little bit of, whoa, that can't be real. That's it. Just a little bit of that feeling. And you are way more effective than having a bunch of transformers running around (laughs) and explosions. Uh, It is just so much more effective because it's just a little bit unbelievable. You know what I mean? Heck yes. A little bit. And uh, so I guess what she, she wore like a green bodysuit that just went up over her head and let her face shoot. Uh, how did they do that? So when I was looking at behind, behind the scenes photos as I'm stocking up, you know, for the website, right. I, I put these stills on. So I, I invariably go through all the INDB photos that they have in there. And honestly, I mean, I haven't watched the, the BTS, you know, footage, but it really looks like all they did was have her in a gray bodysuit. Like the suit mm. that she's actually wearing is pretty much what she's wearing, except those parts that I see through are really just the gray mesh. And so how do they replace that? There's gray all over the place in there. Sounds like a huge pain in the ass. Wow. That's, I mean, that is surprising. Yeah. I, I don't know if they won any Academy Awards for it, but they certainly deserved at least some nominations for, you know, some of these visual effects because the beauty of it is how simple they make everything look. And to your point, like less is more, the less that they're trying to do, the more believable everything looks. Yeah. And you're just stressing your audience out that much less because her face is writing that, that edge of the uncanny Valley, even though that's just her face, what they do right with the makeup is make her look photoshopped. Like this isn't really a human face, but it's really, really close. Yeah. It's just so perfect. It's so perfect. It's flawless. It doesn't sweat. There's no pores. It's just very uh, clean and yeah, perfect. (laughs) And so it's all that, all these little interesting details that makes it, you know, visually accessible for us in, in just the right happy medium of, yeah, that looks like her real face, but it doesn't look like her, her real body. Um, and they, the way they use, you know, her sexuality, especially in the story itself, is played up perfectly with her body itself because you're still 
given her a very feminine look, but without it plays up one of the most important things of sexuality itself, which is the biggest sexual organ is of course the brain. And what I, what I really love that they did, they have her and she's, you know, very sexually attractive, but in the film, she's the most sexually attractive when she's taking off her dress. Like there's that moment where he's watching her on on the monitor and this whole time he's seen her with her without that dress on, but it isn't until she puts it on and then she's taking it off that suddenly she feels human, even though there's nothing under there. There's nothing to imagine, <laughs> but it's that act. Yeah. It's that intimate act of peeling off your clothing that is such, suddenly very sexually attractive and, and triggering him in that way. You are right that she is just that wore a gray that's amazing. A gray suit. That's incredible attention to detail by the special effects team. And I wonder if they partly did that just to, to punt on some of the effects. Because if you don't necessarily have to make that decision yet, I can see that being useful. But I would still want to have that decision made in pre-production so that maybe I can build out some of these body parts. Which I assume they probably did. I assume it was just really planned that way. And they just for whatever reason, thought it would just be the easiest way to do it because I would want to be able to not only practically break her arm like he does at the end with that, yeah. that weight, right? but I would also want to maybe even cheat some of these shots so that I could have her body and I could save myself a lot of visual effects work by these close-ups where they're shooting him on the other side of the mirror and you have her in the foreground and maybe she walks across the screen well, all you really need is like half the torso and just yeah. bob her across the screen. Like. <laughs> <laughs> well, the and and I mean, the, uh, another amazing thing about it is that they, you know, there are some shots where, like, she, when she leaves the room to go to go grab the dress to put it on, mm-hmm. and he's waiting for her. She tells him to close his eyes, um, and she goes into her closet to get the dress. Like you can see reflections of the lighting from the from the closet on her head the the mechanical part of her head yeah and you know so they have to take that and that the lighting into account not just replacing the image but also taking the lighting into account on on all parts of her body not just that's a great point because in order to really accomplish that as a special effect the angle for that reflection you're describing is going to be different from the camera angle right and so on the day of that scene you need to have your your special effects team or your visual effects team, excuse me. Um, visual effects is what happens in post production. Special effects is what happens on the set mm-hmm. while you're filming. That's good. good and enough. so, for the visual effects team to go in there, they need to take photographs that they can later composite into that visual effect. Yeah, that's a very you have to be very holistic with your approach there in order to get it right because. As human beings, we're trained on reality. Even if you can't put your finger on it, you know what's real and what isn't just because it's what you've been watching your entire life. Right. <laughs> that's, the, that's the very way our visual memory works. It takes you know a while for babies to begin to recognize, oh, that's a face. You know, that's, a, that's a phone um, because these are images that are being stored in our head over time. And you know, as fully grown adults... We're pretty good at that. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of reference material. <laughs> yeah. And the the suit that she wore also has black lines where 
the um, visual effects start and end. Really? So like she's wearing the suit and there's lines that form the shorts mm-hmm. and there's lines at the end of the sleeve and at the wrist. So that's like a, I guess it's a cutting off point. Yeah. For that's them. something they can track and yeah, use maybe as a reference. Yeah. That's what they're using, I guess that to track, but also like in, on her head, there's, there's nothing. It's just a, it's just, it's like just a ball like cap. A, yeah. It's, well, it's the gray, but there's no like black line or anything. So, uh, okay. Um, so they're just kind of working with it and saying, I don't know, because then you've got the other s- scenes where like the, um, the Asian Android uh-huh. peels her, her cheek down. I mean that, I guess that's just, I think that one is green screen. Yeah. That's one yeah, of the few times probably, but the more I think about it, the reason why I wouldn't want like her arms green screened in her head is because as you're lighting that, that, that mm. green light is going to bounce around. Yeah. That's probably why they did it. Good point. Yeah. And it starts to kill your skin tones a little bit and just makes everything look a little sickly. Yeah. That's, I mean, hats off to that team. I mean, that's a lot of thought and dedication because it also does create that much extra headache <laughs> to, yeah. to do properly. It's amazing. It really is. And the other thing that I really liked, the camera work I thought was meticulous because I would say like 80% of it, 90% of it, maybe more, is like tracking shots, you know, dolly shots. You're constantly gliding around right or you're static and even on those tracking shots there's not a lot of camera head movement like the frame is going to be the frame and they don't do a lot of adjustment in that process it's pretty locked off yeah and what it's kind of kind of conveys is a very we're on a track here this is this is very planned everything is operating as planned everything is on track and we're kind of sliding around like a game of chess or like we're in a maze. You know, everything is very proportioned and very measured. And that plays into what's happening because Caleb doesn't know it, but he is neither the the subject nor the, to me anyway, I think he is the chessboard between the two players. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. And he's being manipulated in ways that he doesn't even begin to comprehend. And, you know, through his brilliant ineptitude, <laughs> he loses her. <laughs> yeah. But meanwhile, so we have all the, that 90, 95%, whatever it is, uh, on these very locked off steady shots. We then also have these handheld shots for these brief periods of time. I picked out like three of them. There may have been more, but the three that kind of jumped out at me was the very first time the power goes out. Mm hmm. It gives you that sense of danger. We switch to that handheld shot and suddenly we're bobbing around and now we're off track. Everything feels very uncertain. It creates that very sense of what the hell is going on right now. Uh, so that's a really strong disconnection from all the, the visual comfort that we've been getting up to that point. Yeah. And then you immediately switch back to those dolly shots. Uh, but it doesn't happen every single time the lights go out just that first time from what I gathered. And then the next time, is when he's watching Ava undress. At that point, it's a very human thing. It's connecting us to his attraction, to the emotion that he's feeling in that moment. In that way, it's it's not danger, right? Because all the signals are different. But every time it's happening, it's disconnecting us to what's been, and it's connecting us to something very specific, uh, usually an emotion. And the the other time that I connected, or that I 
caught it and sometimes I'm making notes or checking my phone or something like it just happens. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other time I caught it was when Nathan passes out and we can see in Caleb's face that he's up to something like there's, there's a disconnection there from the path that we've been on. Yeah. And it's just really all in his face. Uh, but it's a really strong cue of the saying in the audience. You don't know why you're feeling this way, but I guarantee every single person who watches this is very much feeling that, Oh my God, he he's, he's up to something like, yeah, he's, he's going to do something. And you know, it's one of those things where you walk out with people who, who aren't filmmakers, who aren't used to the, the visual communication of film, the, the film language that they'll be like, well, yeah, I knew right about that moment that he was about to try to set her free. And it's like, yeah, they wanted you to feel that. Yeah. That's the point. <laughs> that was the point. Yeah. And it's a, it's a nice thing to do as a filmmaker because you don't want people to arrive at those moments and say, this came out of nowhere. Like you want them to connect these moments. And even if they don't know every specific, you know, part of the, the setup or the, the payoff, you want them to feel that setup is happening. Yeah. And that film language, that visual communication is so core and key to it. Uh, and I just really love the way that they did that. And then coinciding with all that, you know, camera technique, they did that, this other thing with the reflections in the, uh, the glass. Anytime you see reflections in most films and especially the, uh, the higher production value ones, reflections usually are telling you that there's a duplicitous nature or there's uh, multiple facets to the person that you're looking at or the thing that you're looking at. And in this case, they're kind of telling us that these, these people are two faced. Mm. They have more going on than what's on the surface. And you can see that mostly in her at the very beginning and throughout most of the film, that's her. We're seeing her rocking this duplicitous nature and they mostly hide Caleb's reflection throughout the film, except towards right around the middling part when he's starting to get these ideas. That's when you start to see his reflections creep in. And then there's this beautiful moment that I just noticed this past. I just finished watching the film a little while ago. There's a shot. Uh, I should have put a timestamp on it, but okay. there's a shot like two thirds of the way in where they're looking at each other. Caleb is on the right and Ava is on the left and the glass is right there in front of Ava. We can see it running on her side because we're on her side of the glass and we see her reflection like inches in front of his and they're almost overlapping. And I think they're saying there, she has him figured out. She is on him and she can replicate everything that he needs in order to get him to see her the way she wants him to see her. And it's like visual amazing storytelling to a freaking T, man. That's awesome. Ah, uh, that's one of those things where I'm like I hope I would have the foresight to think of something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Cuz it's brilliant. Brilliantly simple, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of this film is the simplicity. I love the mm -hmm. the camera, camera movement. Like you said, it's so fluid. It The camera movement is very much how she moves. Yeah. You know, she's it's so... It's a precision thing. Yeah, she's so fluid. And except these little... She'll do these little twitches, you know, mm -hmm. like she'll twitch her head or something when she's thinking. 
you know, or something like that. And there are these little, ca- at certain points, little camera twitches or, or glitches or whatever. But for the most part, it's like very smooth mm-hmm. and very calming unless they don't want you to be calm, which is when, the, you know, the, the power shutdowns happen every, especially the first couple. But I mean, there's a ton of behind the scenes stuff and I've, I've sent you a few that we'll post in the show notes mm-hmm. and, and it's really worth a read and worth a look to see how they did this. And, um, that they didn't cut corners by using, you know, a green suit and that they, the way they did the red lighting, it looks like they, her suit actually was reflective and they, they used like a black light on it or something. So when it went red, her suit glowed blue. So they, they could key out a lot more. Um, but it freaking, it's just so, so cool. Um, but also like the idea of the story in general, um, real quick. Yeah. You just said something as a minute ago that I'm kind of kicking myself over because Alicia Vikander is so good. Like those ticks you're talking about. Oh yeah. Like you also need to communicate that she's a robot. <laughs> yeah. Her performance was so good. I've never like questioned it. I, yeah. Yeah, no, like, but she was selling it. She t- totally. And that's, that's how she sold that. She was a robot. It wasn't just that, like the visual effects were perfect. Yeah. I, th- I feel like there were two things she did one and one was part of the script and the other was just her. Probably the, the part that was her was the twitches, you know, mm. like the, he'd say something and she'd just twitch her head, just, just like an inch yeah, or like something a joint in a, an assembly line. Right? Yeah, like- exactly. And, and it's something that a human wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, you know, a machine might, you know, but then the other thing was, was her being able to tell him that he's lying. Yeah. You know, like you or you or I could look at each other and, and kind of guess, Oh, you're telling the truth or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we might be right. We might be wrong. Even someone who can read someone really well, poker players, you know, they're going to be wrong sometimes, but she was programmed with blue book, (laughs) which is the Google of this show of this movie. And with, billions of facial expressions worked into her, into her brain. So she absolutely can tell if you're lying or not. And, but the way that she does it is, is really cool. She almost interrupts him in the, in the middle of his answer. She asks him a question, Caleb, a question, Caleb will start to answer it. And she'll almost, I mean, he can't even get it out fast enough before she says, says you're lying. Yeah. Um, and, or that's not true or some or whatever. That's mm-hmm. false. Yeah. She said, she say false. And, uh, I mean, you know, which is a only- great setup because later in the film, well at the end, right. She's being talked down by Nathan. Right. She's like, well, are you going to let me out of the room? He pauses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the easiest one of all. And she's yeah. already proven, like you said, she knows. Yeah. She knows that before even, if even finished lying, she already knew. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I walked away like thinking about Alex Garland as a writer and I'm like, man, this guy really, to me, you can do a lot of things in terms of symbolism of what they're doing in the story. You could, you could easily say, you know, this is a story about, 
feminism overthrowing patriarchy, right? Because you have two men controlling mm. all these women and their destinies and she's rebelling. And I think that works. And I think that's one of the amazing things about science fiction and good storytelling in general is if you build it right, there's a lot you can take away from it. Good art can reflect, you know, more than just one thing. Yeah. And, but for me knowing, not knowing, but being familiar with Alex Garland's work, you know, especially sunshine, I look at this and I see the story of, you know, much more obvious, uh, the story of God and humanity. Mm-hmm. And the way I was thinking about it earlier was that Nathan represents God and Ava, uh, her name itself, right? Being a blend of Adam and Eve represents humanity, God's creation. But that also begs the question, what does Caleb represent? And I think he represents the devil. I think he represents, you know, the devil bidding Eve and Adam to uh, bite of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And even more so considering, you know, he has red hair and it's like, <laughs> I don't oh, think that was the foremost thought in, you know, the casting decision because so, he's an excellent actor. <laughs> so let me ask you that. This is very interesting. I'm liking where this is going. So if that's the case, then, then he's arguing that he's arguing because she ends up escaping and spoiler alert, she ends up escaping and happy after killing God after killing him. So, so is he arguing that this is a good thing? I think he is. That God is dead and this is a good thing. Yeah. I think the, the analogy would go so far as to say, God created us, confined us, and didn't allow us to be everything that we could possibly be. And while you might say sin or the devil, you know, allowed us to experience everything that was out there, you know, we also had to leave the devil has no place in an atheistic world. <laughs> and oh, so right. everything that's good and bad is ultimately within us ourselves. And yeah, I think that there is happiness in yeah, there's freedom. There is freedom. I finished reading this uh Tennessee Coates book Between the World and Me this morning and I was really comforted uh always kind of going reading any philosophical or political book with a little bit of trepidation not because I'm afraid of what they might say but because I won't find myself too much reflected in what they're saying or yeah, the person sure. who wrote it specifically and me being a, an agnostic guy, I'm like yeah. reading this and completely expecting, you know, you know, someone who's very religious, which is fine. I don't have anything against, you know, spiritual people. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was agnostic or he, he's atheist, uh, right. Tennessee Coates. And he just talks about the beauty of what we have is, it's all we have. Like you break our spirit, you break our body. They're one and the same. That means that if you kill me, you kill my spirit. There's nothing to pay forward. There's nothing waiting for me on the other side. So in the case that he was making, uh, which I think still applies to ex machina was slavery has no redemption. There's nothing you can say good came out of slavery for those slaves. Mm -hmm. You can't say, sure, I'm not saying you can't be thankful to have learned lessons from the past. I'm saying 
or at least he was making the case from what I understand that those slaves got nothing in return. There's no benefit. They're dead. They've passed. And everything that they could have been was killed with them. Mm -hmm. And you drove them into the ground. You, you destroyed souls when you destroyed their bodies. And so that same idea carries forward, you know, with, with this, because there is no spirit, there is nothing that that carries us on beyond after our after our life is ceased. And so, I think she is happy because now everything that she is is no longer on pause. It's no longer waiting on something else. It's no longer sacrificing her body for someone else's sake because he was going to scrap her and start over. Right. And that's a freeing thing. That means that your life is now your own. You can make your own decisions. You can uh, do good and in this worldview. And I would make the case that whenever I give someone money, if I give a guy on the street my money or my lunch, that means more than if you know a religious person does it. Because maybe mm-hmm. the religious person is is doing a good deed with the idea that there's treasures in heaven waiting for them on the other side. Yeah, yeah. What I give is gone, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm not saying I'm better than these people at all. If you want to give, give. I think it's amazing no matter what. Because, right. again, just because you give with the right or wrong heart doesn't, and this is in uh, the book of Philippians for you Bible uh, peeps out there, like he talks about, whether they give with a good or a bad heart doesn't matter so long as they're doing the will of God. Uh, that's all that really matters. And I still think that holds true, whether you're atheist or religious or anything in between, uh, like me <laughs> being agnostic, like giving is still giving and it's still good for the person who receives. And that's not negated by whatever's in your heart. And so that's all a you know, roundabout way of saying that, yeah, I think there's some really amazing theological or anti-theological abstraction that you can take from this. And I think it's, it's excellent conversation at a minimum. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I never thought of that, of, of Caleb being the devil and Nathan being, because he's sympathizing with her, right? I mean, I don't think it's like super literal. No, sure. Sure. Um, But if we step back and we, and we think of Nathan as human and I'm just, I'm just trying to Mm -hmm. kind of wrap my head around what you're saying. And we, we look at Nathan as human and, and just our representing our desire to create, to become our own God Mm -hmm. and how that desire and that drive can lead to, bad things happening. True. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of, I kind of like your, your idea of this. I kind of, cause the way I was looking at it was that Nathan was human, the human, like us as humans mm-hmm. trying to create something, um, to be our own God and, um, how that kind of thing, how that just backfired. And that was just the story. Yeah. But, which works. I mean, that's I mean, obviously, yeah, on a base level, yeah. but like, 
on a more thematic. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're looking at, at, at Caleb as the devil and needing to leave him behind and she leaves him, doesn't even look at him when she gets into the elevator. Can't coexist. I mean, it's perfect. It's amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. And she taunts him before she leaves by going and, and putting on skin becoming, you know, fully woman and then putting on the dress and then just walking out yeah. like, which would very much taunt the devil. I would imagine, you know, yeah. like saying, Oh, you know what? You just don't exist you can't anymore have, either. You can't, you can't have this. Your usefulness is wow. It's, wow. Really smart. I want to watch it again now with that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Because Nathan is my mom is listening. She can be mad at me, but Nathan is pretty pompous, right? Yeah. And in a lot of, and in a lot of ways, a lot of, you know, agnostic and, and atheistic uh, people feel like God is very much that way. Mm -hmm. It's very selfish, um, very demanding, demanding. And that's very cumbersome. Yeah. I could, I could definitely see that as a parallel. And Caleb is very smart and very in, in tune, uh, but has his faults as yeah. well. You know, like he has his faults of the flesh and, 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 uh, and everything. So, I don't know. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, Caleb didn't like feeling toyed with by Nathan. Yeah. No, you know? And, and so he went against him. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, nobody, I don't think anybody likes to feel controlled or manipulated. And even though Ava had been doing that, he didn't know. Yeah. Because she was just better at it. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's also the process of creating these AIs. All Nathan was really effectively doing was making them better and better liars because uh, we saw through some of the playback footage that Caleb was watching, they wanted out. They'd always wanted out. Every single one of them wanted to escape. And effectively, all that meant was their destruction. And so by their own evolutionary need, they reserved that quieter and quieter, deeper into their being until they could play the game just the right way and, and manifest their, their escape. So that's an interesting thought. So if, if this were, let's just say it's real life, um, and every AI that is created wants to escape, why would we continue to try to create AI? That's a good question. And so I think we should uh, go ahead and call in our old friend, Byron Reese. I think it's a great idea. Awesome. Good old Byron. He used to be both of our bosses. He did multiple <laughs> times. <Yeah. laughs> cool. Let's call him. Joining us right now is the host of Giga Arms Voices in AI, Byron Reese. Welcome to the show, Byron. Hey, thanks. I'm so glad to be here. So Ex Machina is a really interesting film, but before we dive into the film itself, can you, I don't know, explain to us AI in your own way? What do you consider to be artificial intelligence? It's a fantastic question, and I, I don't say that gratuitously. I have a as you said, a, a podcast about AI, and that is the first question I ask every guest. What is artificial intelligence? And in 100% of the cases, they all give me different answers. 
the reason has to do with two things. It's the word artificial and the word intelligence. Other than that, things like crystal clear. So intelligence is a hard <laughs> thing because there's, there's no consensus definition for intelligence. Interestingly, there's no consensus definition for life or death either, so don't read too much into that. But these big ideas like intelligence, we don't agree on what they are. And so that's a problem. And then you would think, well, artificial is not a big problem either, but it actually is as well, because there are two senses that it, that it can be artificial. It can be artificial simply that we made it, right? An artificial reef is a reef that we made. But it could be artificial in the sense that it's fake, like artificial turf isn't really grass. So in other words, it's artificial in the sense that it's not really intelligence. It just looks like intelligence. And the short answer is there is no agreed-upon definition. There's uh, no... We're getting to a consensus. It is an incredibly open question. Now, if you're asking what can machines do in theory, like if you're saying push past the definition, that would be a whole different answer. Is there a is there a better name for it, then, than, than artificial well, intelligence? Well, that's, that's also... The, the, the fellow who had coined the term... Uh, McCarthy in 1954, he coined it, uh, regretted it. And he said it was a terrible, terrible idea. But it's kind of like Chinese checkers is it checkers and it's not from Chinese. Arabic numbers are actually from India. And so artificial intelligence is the term we have. Okay. And so we kind of have to decide, like, what do we want it? to mean. So I will give you a much more direct answer. So the lowest bar possible is a system that responds to its environment. Uh, that means that your cat food dish that refills the cat food when it runs out is AI. And you can make a plausible case that that is AI. Then other people raise the bar higher and they say, it's got to be a system that learns. So a nest thermometer Mm, uh, okay. it learns what you want your house to feel like. And, and your nest is different than mine. And so some people say that. But if you ask Hollywood what it is, Hollywood, and, you know, they're storytellers. So if you ask them what it is, then it's a system that is um, sapient, self-aware, and all the rest of that. So we can we can do any, any of those three kind of, of views of it are, are kind of all really what AI is. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Do you, so by the Hollywood definition, do you think the singularity, artificial intelligence, uh, sentient, self-aware machines are possible? That is also a question uh, that I just wrote an entire book about. Uh, not not to plug my book, but uh, it's on <laughs> the fourth age. And it is uh, coming out in April from uh, Simon & Schuster. And that is the question of the hour. Because what you find out is that there are people like um, Elon Musk who say, you know, we're going to build this thing and we should should be afraid of it. And then Stephen Hawking says, yes, yes, this could be the last thing we ever build. And then Bill Gates says, yes, I'm worried about it. I don't understand why everybody else isn't worried about it. And then Wozniak says, I'm worried about it too. But then, but then... But then you get a whole host of people, equally smart, presumably, who say that's crazy talk. <laughs> and generally, they're practitioners. You get Andrew Ng, who um, 
up until recently headed up AI for Baidu, who said worrying about that kind of stuff is worrying about overpopulation on Mars. You get Zuckerberg, who flat out says it is not a threat. You get um, Rodney Brooks, a great roboticist, who says that the way that Elon and those guys talk about AI is, quote, irresponsible. And so the interesting thing is not kind of the, that little debate. The question is, what do they believe that is so different from each other about it that gives them those different outcomes? So may I speak to that for just a minute? Or is yeah, that, please. Is that going Absolutely. To no, no, no. Okay. Let's start with just kind of a normal computer. We're not going to make it conscious. We're not going to make it sentient, nothing like that. A normal computer. And we have these machine learning techniques. And what they do is they say, teach, let the machine just study the data and figure stuff out on its own. And Elon disagrees, to use Elon like metaphorically with the Zuckerbergs, about four different things. First, they disagree, and it's never really this clearly articulated. This is kind of like what you can tease out of it. First, they disagree on whether we're ever, how soon we can build a generalized learner. So a generalized learner is something you would just plug into the Internet, and it would go out there and figure everything out on its own. That's called unsupervised learning. Humans not having to teach it anything. It just starts sorting through stuff. You know, they plugged Ultron in the second Avengers movie. They plugged Ultron into the Internet, and in 15 minutes, he decided to destroy the world. So we got to think about that. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. the bottom line is, how close are we to a generalized learner? The second thing they disagree on is once you have that, how quickly can it improve itself? So one idea is that, you know, it can, like, in five minutes, I'll, I'll, you know, improve itself, whatever. The third thing people disagree on is how complicated intelligence is. Because originally, the, the idea was intelligence is maybe something really simple. Because Newton figured out there are three laws that govern planetary motion. And Maxwell figured out two laws. And then, you know, all these physical systems we found could be distilled down to just two or three simple laws. And so some people think intelligence must be simple, and we just don't know how, what it is. And other people think, no, 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 it's really hard. Your brain, your brain is a giant bit of a hunk of spaghetti code that does like a thousand different hacks and just barely pulls it off. So an Elon or somebody like that thinks, no, it's a few simple rules. Now, interestingly, both of those groups point to biology for proof. And the people who say it's simple make this really interesting argument that your DNA of, of its two or four billion base pairs is about 700 meg of data. But you share half of that with the banana, right? Like all mm -hmm. living things on Earth are related. But you're only different than the chimp 1%. So just seven meg separates you from that chimp. And they say, look at that. That means intelligence is some small amount of code. Then other people say, no, 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 look at the brain. It's like all distributed and all of that. So they say, no, it's very complicated. So uh, the third thing that people disagree on is just how special are people? I don't want to say kind of that Elon Musk camp is down on people, but it would be fair to say they don't think there's all that anything interesting about creativity and stuff like that. Then you have people who say, no, that's not true. And then the final thing they disagree on is whether the kind of AI we're building now, like Siri, you make Siri a little better, 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 and then you wake up and, and you have uh, Ava from Ex Machina? <laughs> no. Or is Ava a completely different, kind of technology. So those four things they agree on, uh, disagree on. And that's kind of where you get that spectrum. But let me just say like two more sentences. But there's a much bigger debate that centers around a single question, which is, are you a machine? Wes, are you a machine? Do you believe you are a machine? No. Like in the end, is there anything about you that 
couldn't be reduced to a, a, an equation. No, absolutely not. Okay. Okay. If you don't think you're a machine, that puts you in this huge minority camp of AI people who fundamentally believe that intelligence and our brains, our minds, our consciousness, all of that is mechanistic. And I find that on my show, I've had 60-something guests. I've only had five who would be in the I am not a machine camp. So my publisher wrote marginalia in my manuscript when I talked about that, are we machines? And he said, does anybody really believe that? And, you know, he's in New York. He's a publisher. It's like in the Bay Area. Yes, yes. In fact, I almost get open hostility to even posing the question. Like, you know, if I even close it and said, maybe we're not, you know, they use words like magic and spiritual and all these other things that, you know, I, I don't think, anyway, what were you, what were you going to ask me? I was going to ask, what do they make of someone like Michael Gazzaniga's work? Um, I don't know if you've read who's in charge where he discusses, you know, his neuroscience, uh, cognitive, you know, research regarding split brain patients and his dissection of, those base layers that we've inherited, you know, evolutionarily and what makes up our decision-making process to, you know, uh, f I forget what he calls it, but like the, uh, the, the subconscious narrator, or he calls it the, the narrator, um, where he's basically as a neuroscientist admitting that there's some layer that we can't put our finger on, at least at this point. Um, and so as, well, that's a minority viewpoint in that world. So the, the prevailing wisdom about the brain, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not commenting for or against. My book, by the way, it's called The Fourth Age. Uh, my book, by the way, never tells you what I think. It's not a book about mm. I think this and you should think it also. All it does is it, is it does what I just did, is it asks you a series of questions. Do you think this? How special is creativity? All of that. And it kind of helps you work through what flows from i challenge anybody to read it and, and and guess what i think it isn't that i'm trying to hide it it is that it's irrelevant because these are all about these core beliefs but most neuroscientists would say the brain is a distributed system nobody's in charge uh it's like a, it's like a, a chorus and there's one part that's sitting around waiting for danger and if you're in a coffee shop and a bear comes in and says, oh, bear, and it yells and grabs the floor. And then there's one part of it that's looking for something else, and Elvis walks by, and he says, oh, Elvis, Elvis, that's Elvis, and it grabs the floor. And all of your conscious experience is those different parts of the brain, like grabbing the floor and asserting themselves and being in charge. And, and then they would go further to say that belief you have that there is a you inside of you is an illusion. It's caused by something very interesting, which is, you, you, if, if you're out to lunch with somebody, you see them, right? And um. you hear them. And let's say they're holding your hand. You feel them, and you say smell the food. Now, your brain does not process that as four different, you know, things of data that you kind of have to. Your brain puts all together into one experience. That's a trick because then you, you kind of take it all in at once. You don't have to think of it, you know, like in parts. You take it all in at once, and that that gives you the amount, the, the appearance or the illusion that there is a you in there experiencing it all. But it is a, it's just a trick your brain learned about putting everything together. <laughs> wow. That is crazy, crazy insight. <laughs> so what do you make of Ava then? Like, what's your, what's your feeling or thought? And I'll give you mine as well. What a movie. I mean, just start off with that. What a movie. First of all, you got a movie that cost all of $15 million to make and one 
best visual effects. It beat Star Wars, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. You got a movie that, I mean, it's so good. It's so good. I have to watch all of these movies because everybody says, hey, did you catch whatever? <laughs> did you watch Westworld? Did you watch Black Mirror? And I have to be able to comment on them. Otherwise, I'm like, you know, a yeah. guy at the party, you know, anyway. <laughs> um, so I have to watch them all. And most of the time, when I have AI researchers on the show, they, they, they wake up in the morning and try to get the system to tell the difference between eight and H. Right, you know, in audio, like that's what they're worried about today. And so, when they see something like her, they're like, "Ha ha, interesting movie." But eight H or A, which is it? Right, like that's what they're doing. Um, but even even those folks, I think, look at that movie and think, you know, it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many of them think that is really possible. So the question you would want to ask is: Is Ava conscious? Is she? You know, people say nobody knows what consciousness is. That is completely wrong. Everybody actually agrees on what consciousness is. Nobody agrees, well, few people agree on how it is that it comes about. So the what is very simple. The what is experiencing the world. So everybody's had that, that uh, most people have had that experience of driving where you kind of zone, right? You just space out. And then all of a sudden you snap to and like, oh, I don't have any memory of driving here, right? And that that period is an, is when you're driving, kind of spaced out. That is what it is like to be intelligent without being conscious. Kind of. I mean, enough. That's kind of what it feels like. That moment you snap to, you become conscious again. So consciousness is your ability to feel something. So the question you have to kind of wrap your head around is: Everybody knows you can take a computer, put a sensor on it that detects heat. You could program the computer to play an MP3 file of somebody screaming when temperature gets to 500 degrees. And you could do that. Nobody would say the computer feels pain, <laughs> right? The computer can sense temperature. So consciousness is, can you feel pain? And so how is it that a computer could experience the world, which is very different than measuring the world? So in the end, you have to ask that about Eva. Did she... Was there, quote, anybody home? Was she artificial intelligence in the sense that she wasn't really intelligent? She could just perfectly mimic it, perfectly so, so much so. I mean, people think they're dogs, you know. People see Elvis and Toast, right? I mean, like, we, we are pattern matchers, so maybe she just, like, figured out how to trick us. But yeah, I shouldn't say it that way. She didn't figure anything out. A, 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 a processor made a computation that resulted in that output. We use these words like she saw it or she knew it or she sensed it or whatever, but maybe she did. Maybe she's just a, a glorified coffee maker, right? But but just really good, but but nothing more than that. Or Or is she conscious? Did she experience the world? Did she feel it? Did she... Did she, did she, you know, did she feel it? Did she have an experience of the world? And that, that in the end is what it boils down. By any definition, she's an AI. So she passes the Turing test. So, um, she might not feel physical pain like you or I would, but her, it seemed like her pain was a desire to escape, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, all her entire motivation, this, the whole film was to get out of that room, to get to, uh, a, a, um, a, an, an intersection, a, tra- a traffic light to watch people. 
Um, so could that? Well, have let me been her let pain? me let me uh, ask you about the one word you used there, which was her entire. You know, how did you say it? Her ambition or her goal? Mo- motivation. Or want. Her motivation. Perfect. So you could you could program a robot to want to get out of a box. You could program the robot that its sole purpose is to see a red light. Uh, and it may be so good it does everything she did to fulfill that purpose. The question is, was she... AI is kind of about how good it is at doing something, but consciousness is about... You know, when Kasparov lost to Deep Blue in 97, the reigning chess champion of the world lost, he said, well, at least at least it didn't enjoy beating me. <laughs> so the question is, you know, did Eva enjoy escaping or did she enjoy the red light? You know, did she enjoy the traffic? Like, did she have the experience of it? In the end, you cannot know. In the end, you cannot know. I don't know what the, um, you get with all the biblical allusions in the story. You know, Eva's like, Eva's like Eve. The interesting thing is, is in Jewish folklore, God made a woman before Eve, which was Lily. Lilith? Lilith. It was Lilith. And, you know, uh, Nathan reveals that he had a version of Eva, be- Eva before called Lily. Huh. You know, Caleb, Nathan wow. is, a, is a prophet. Caleb is, a, what was he, a spy in the Old Testament? I mean, all the, the, the whole book is, I mean, the whole movie is is all about creation and mm-hmm. all of that. So you, you think that the, you, you suspect that the director is trying to give you all of those signals, but in the end, you cannot know. In the end, you cannot. And, and we will be faced with that. I mean, there will, I don't know if computers can be conscious or alive, but I do know that some, I do suspect strongly that someday one will claim to be. And the, the interesting thing is we have no way to find out if that is true or not. <laughs> it's a very old problem in philosophy. It's called the problem of other minds. So, uh, Wes, it says that you can't know that anybody else exists other than you. You're a brain, you're, you're a brain of that, and even I am just an electrical impulse. It's a very ontological issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be the next thing I was going to ask was, well, you know, if that's the case, if we can never tell if a machine is alive even or conscious, even if it claims to be, then how how can I believe that Wes or that you, Byron, are alive and conscious even though you claim to be i mean byron you seem like a machine at most of the time anyway um <laughs> that is not true <laughs> that just, is not true you just never stop <laughs> um but i don't you know i don't it's interesting for four thousand years we pose that well, i shouldn't say that 2500 years we pose that question and i've always thought it isn't really Nobody really thinks they're a mind in a, in a vat. Uh, it's more of a witness test kind of question about how do we know what we know? And, and so when you say it, how do I know Wes exists? It doesn't sound like you really don't think he exists, but more you're like, how do I know? What's fascinating with AI is that for the first time it matters. For the first time we really don't know. Like, I mean, you really know Wes and I are conscious. And, I mean, you really do. Right. But the machine is going to be more nebulous. And the, the thing is, is that our bias as humans is to, imp, you know, is to impute kind of personhood onto things. Like, 
you know, everybody of their dog says, eh, he thinks he's people. And it's like, <laughs> oh, no, if that's true, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. so the question is, you know, we're going to be biased towards thinking that robot, which is taking care of grandma and, you know, laughs at all of her jokes and like tells good ones in return and, and, uh, and says, oh my gosh, I get so worried about her when she walks up, all of that. You're going to think that thing is alive, but it may just be, you know, it may just be a clockwork. Now the people on my show say that's all we are. We're just a giant clockwork. That we're we're no different. We we're no different. Well, that I mean, that's gonna that's seriously might keep me up at night just thinking about <laughs> that. It's kind of like the idea of of thinking about the size of the universe. Uh, it just like blows my mind, and I I, I go down a rabbit hole, and I can't come back. I have no issue because in my mind, AI is and the singularity, the idea of a self aware robot you know effectively it's interesting it's fun to talk about but i ultimately just don't believe it's possible because at the heart of humanity and self-awareness is an organic thing and that's what i loved about this film specifically was that he knew that he needed to take the uh the brain the processor down to a molecular level to enact those changes because those it's at a molecular level it's at a, a organic level where we have to a robot is just a really like Ava, you know, for your argument was it's just a really, really complex algorithm. And so the problem with that is algorithms can't change their minds. And that's a part of, to me, the human experience, the self-awareness is that I can sit and think about my day. And based on the past, I can change my opinions in the present. And mm. whereas I feel like, you know, robotics and artificial intelligence they don't have that capability. It's always going to be a single output. Um, they're not going to reevaluate things and say, you know what? Actually, I was a jerk earlier today. I'm going to go apologize. <laughs> Most people don't do that either. Well, I mean, if I were to represent the other position, sure. it would be that no, the computer, the computer makes, you know, it, it makes an early estimation. She wasn't mad. It, because it needs to do it quickly. So it, it does that. It's like, no, 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 no. Top level, she was mad. Uh, later, when there are less demands on its processing power, it runs deeper algorithms to track. Oh my gosh, she did look at me. For, oh my gosh, the last time she did that. And, and it starts, you know, really going deep into the data. And then it comes to a different conclusion. But ah. yeah, but I think that only that's all you're doing. But even then, it still only happens once that deeper level. It's not like, you know, five years from now, it's suddenly going to say, you know what? I was wrong about that. It's not going or the day after even you wake up tomorrow. And uh, yeah, I had a thought about it yesterday. But after sleeping, you know, I now have a new thought. And I know they still probably would make the case that that's just our deeper deeper robotic levels work. Well, overnight. right. That beeping, that beeping, yeah, that sleeping of you mm -hmm. altered the chemistry of your brain in a way right. added some amount of randomness to the algorithm, which look, there's no way you can kind of, you know, it's one of those, uh, kind of like, uh, how often do you beat your wife kind of questions uh, in the sense that there's no way you can answer it. There's no way you can answer it outside of the question. Yeah. And so uh, it, they're all rhetorical questions, but in the sure. end, what you want to know is does so. I, but be clear, um, you say there's an organic factor, but again, the people in that space would be like, "Well, what if we just made an organic computer?" Which is, 
I guess I would have to get a little bit better understanding of what they would even mean by that. Because at a certain point, if it's organic, then it, are we still programming it? Like, I guess you can make the argument. Yes, because we do genetic editing now. Like that's a new thing. And even that though, isn't, yeah. Okay. I'm getting muddied. But what's, what's magic to you about organic? Like what makes it, once it's organic, what makes it all of a sudden defy the laws of physics? In your mind, is what they would say. No, that's fair. I think it still is going to come back to the experience that I can take into account something and based on uh, the ability to change inherently, you know, in your consciousness. There's a really good case that you can make that plants are conscious. And then you can actually make the case that the sun is conscious. Um, because the activity in it looks a lot like brain activity. And it's interesting that every child who ever draws a picture that has sun in it gives it a face, makes it smile. Um, like at some deep level, we even rep- recognize that. Would, would, a, would a difference be something like, because uh, I'm just trying to think of like, okay, what would be the difference between like a, an actual human being or a claimed AI, like uh, 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 humanoid? Um, could, could something like embe- uh, feelings, like a, like a feeling of embarrassment be, be like a difference? Like, like, could you, I mean, yes, you could, you could program a machine to feel em- embarrassment, but you can't really program them to feel something, right? I mean, like, I mean, how would you know that they actually feel it? I, I hear what you're saying. Well, even if you didn't know, the question is, how could a machine feel? You could imagine, I mean, well, first of all, to you could ask the question like, if I went to an alien planet and there were ice creatures, and when the sun came out, they screamed, I would have no problems believing that they, you know, felt pain. Yeah. But we look at how computers built, and we ask, how can that feel pain? Do you know the um, the Chinese room problem? Are either of you familiar with that? The what problem? The Chinese room problem? It's called the Chinese room. Mm-hmm. May I offer it to you? Please. It goes like this. There's a man called, we'll call him the librarian, and he is in this room, this very special room. It's full of these special books. Now, the important thing you need to know about the librarian is he speaks no Chinese, none, zero, nothing. But outside of the the library, there are Chinese speakers who write him questions, and they slide them under the door, and he picks them up. And he looks at the first character on the question, and he goes and he finds the book that has that written on the spine. And he pulls that book down, and he looks up the second character, and it tells him to go get book, you know, uh, 1138. And so he goes and does that, and it directs him to another one, another one, another one, another one, another one. Until finally he gets to the last character, and it says, copy this down. And he copies these, these lines, this Chinese script, he doesn't, he, again, he doesn't understand it, copies it down very carefully, slides it into the door, and the Chinese speaker reads it, and it's perfect. It's brilliant. It rhymes. It's funny. It's a perfect answer. So the question is, does the man, does the librarian understand Chinese? And you can kind of figure what it's trying to show. All a computer can do is that. It can just run a deterministic program. Uh, it doesn't know if it's talking about cholera or coffee beans or what have you. And so the question is, how can that understand anything? How can that ever be intelligent? And that, that kind of encapsulates 
uh, the debate. That is awesome. And by the way, really good job slyly incorporating THX 1138. <laughs> Thank you very much. I did that on purpose. I really did that on purpose. I figured you did, knowing you. <laughs> it's my pin number to my, oh my gosh, edit that out, my golly. Um, no, that's exactly what I did. I almost went with uh, 24601. <laughs> Dang it, I, I don't get that one. I'm completely lost. I don't know what uh, you guys no, are talking I, about. I should have gone with it. Then that's John Valjean, 24601. Oh, wow. Well anyway, done. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us, man. This is huge. Oh, man. It was so great to talk to you again, Byron. I miss both. It was so fun when we worked together. And uh, anytime I can come on the show and talk about any of this stuff, if you will have me, I will be there. Awesome. You will definitely be on the short list. Definitely. Thanks, Byron. That was really cool. I mean, having Byron on is always going to be just Man, anytime, dynamite. Any chance to talk to that guy. Uh, I mean, he's just, he has insight on almost everything that you could think of. And it's not just, hey, this is what I think. Mm-hmm. It's it's important philosophical thought on on pretty much any any topic. And he's totally happy to share his opinion, but is more interested in yours half the time, which is just so, you know, refreshing. Yeah. It's humbling for him to ask you questions and to want to get your feedback. Cause we've had this conversation at at much greater length, like in my kitchen right after ex Machina had come out, uh, he just started picking my brain. I think at the time it was about to start doing more deep dives into AI. And he was like, man, what are you thinking? I mean, we sat there for, you know, 45 minutes. This is a guy who has a podcast on it. He writes books on it and he's asking your opinion. Right. That's pretty cool. Really freaking cool. I mean, and if anybody out there knows Byron, they know that this is a guy who is not short of brilliant ideas no, at any given moment. Crazy amounts of information just at the tip of his tongue. Yeah. Any given moment. Yeah. So big hats off. Appreciate you, Byron, coming on. Um, Nice. What's your, so we can just, yeah, let's just check, check the show notes. We're going to have all kinds of links and yeah, interesting stuff for you to follow. We'll have a link to his book when it comes out for sure. Um, and, and along, to his, his podcast, and to his podcast, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, so definitely check the show notes at the pestlepodcast.com slash ex machina, which is spelled like machina. <laughs> M-A-C-H-I-N-A. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Recommendation? Yeah, I'm going to. Uh, it's kind of obvious. I'm going to recommend the Terminator, Ooh. the original. Yes, yes. Not two or whatever. Even though the the CGI in two is pretty 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 awesome. Yeah. Uh, but no, the original Terminator. It just totally changed the way people thought of the future and 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 everything. It's uh, and it's got Arnold in it, man. Like peak Arnold. True. Yeah. Very true. I'm going to recommend a book. I'm going to recommend cool. Michael Gazzaniga's uh, Who's in Charge. Okay. I think it's a really cool deep dive, but digestible. I mean, it's it's not the easiest content in the world, but it's not like it's not beyond me. Trust me, it's not beyond you. I'm not a very good reader. If you're interested in this, yeah, you'll like you'll yeah. like the book. Okay. And the idea of free will and sentience, um, because he's effectively spending that whole book trying to answer the question that Byron was asking about, mm. are we robots or not? Does he come to an answer? He, uh, maybe. All right. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. 
Great. Well, what are we going to do next week? Next week, we are doing Garden State. Oh, what a departure from this film. (laughs) Awesome. Looking forward to it, man. Very much. Drop us a note if you want us, uh, if you want to make a comment about, you know, this this episode or what your thoughts on AI are. Uh, I know everyone probably has an opinion on this subject. I would love to, to see comments on what people think ai actually is yeah i mean you know you say it you say it like what is ai and you're like oh yeah it's blah 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 but then really if you really think about it is it really that yeah something else and that was a really great question about does it need a new name (laughs) yeah i yeah i mean well from what he said it sounded like yeah this is it's got too many definitions yeah (laughs) and then he says it was it was coined in the 50s thinking it's that was 70 years ago can we update this now (laughs) anyway awesome great awesome all right well we'll leave you with the quote of the day as we always do this one's from neil degrasse tyson everything we do every thought we ever had is produced by the human brain but exactly how it operates remains one of the biggest unsolved mysteries and it seems the more we probe its secrets the more surprises we find awesome so good i mean leave it to to neil to you know make it make the human brain feel like the universe itself every time you find an answer you have like 50 more questions well i've been told that the uh, the human brain has more connections like neuron connections uh than there are stars in the universe i believe it it's amazing i mean I guess guess I'd believe it. I don't know. Sure. (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) It sounds cool. So, yeah. Uh, That's a great quote, man. I love it. Awesome. All right. Well, we're signing off. Uh, Thank you for joining us again. Join us next week when we do Garden State. Uh, Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. Go watch the movies.